Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 108, aka Amunhotep IV. In this episode, we begin the story of Amunhotep IV, most commonly known as the Pharaoh Akhenaten. In this episode, we set some foundations, looking at the king's first year in power, his initial monuments, and his public personality. We lay the groundwork for a reign that will be unique in the annals of Egyptian history. It's a story many of you have been waiting for, so let's jump right in. Today's episode is brought to you by Karen Wells and Hans Anderson in gratitude for their donation. Karen, Hans, your generosity is most appreciated. The priests burn incense in the shrines of Rei Horakti that he may spread his light over your domain. Also, thank you to Phoebe and Dennis for becoming patrons of the podcast. Ray Horakti smiles on your tribute, and the temples function with your support. The year was 1362 BCE, approximately. Egypt basked in the glow of Neb Ma'at Rey Amunhotep III, the dazzling Aten who illuminates all lands. No, wait, sorry, force of habit. Amunhotep III was gone, travelling to the west in his form of Osiris. Departed, but not forgotten, the late Neb Ma'at Rey had ascended to the divine plains, and his eternity had begun. On earth, Horus lived again in the body of a new king. Amunhotep IV, eldest son of the late pharaoh, inherited his father's crowns and became ruler of the two lands. In the traditional perspective, a new cycle of the world, a new era, now began. With the death of the old king and his interment at the Valley of the Kings, a powerful regime was laid to rest. It had been 38 years since the transition of power occurred. For many Egyptians, perhaps most of them, Neb Ma'at Rey was the only pharaoh they had ever known. A tiny handful might remember earlier days, but they would have been the minority. For most Egyptians, this new ruler was a change politically and conceptually. Of course, you and I know an awful lot about Amunhotep IV and the strange path he took during his reign. But for this first episode, I want you to forget everything you know about him. To understand this king, we need to put him in a proper context, and that means looking at his decisions in as much isolated detail as possible. To begin, we should look at how he established himself upon the thrones of Egypt. Amunhotep IV was probably in his late teens when he came to power. We don't know for certain, but the strength of his personality, and the speed with which he began to express his convictions, suggests that he was mature, not a child. He could have been as young as 14, or as old as his early 20s. There is no certainty. As a sort of mid-range point, I've made him approximately 18 years old when his father died. But that is just an educated guess. Don't quote me on it. The new pharaoh probably came to power around January of 1362 BCE, right after the death of his father. While the great Neb Ma'adre was mummified, Amunhotep IV donned the crowns, received the blessings, and became the new king of Upper and Lower Egypt. 
First things first, he needed to choose his name. Pharaohs conventionally wielded five names as part of their royal identity. Some of these were formulaic, unchanging, others had more variation, and rulers could use them to express aspects of their personality or their outlook and the role they intended to play. Amunhotep IV chose some interesting names for himself. These give us a clue to his mindset at the very beginning of his rule. For his throne name, the one by which commoners and foreign kings alike would refer to him, Amunhotep chose the title Nefer Keperu Rei Wa En Rei. This is an interesting pair of names, one that combines a sense of traditionalism with a new expression of power. The first part, Nefer Keperu Rei, is quite traditional. It means beautiful other forms or appearances of Rei. And this fit within the conventional naming patterns of 18th dynasty rulers. Amunhotep's predecessors had used the Keperu Rei formula as part of their throne names too. For example, Thutmose IV had been Men Keperu Rei, Amunhotep II had been Aa Keperu Rei. Even the legendary Thutmose III had been Men Keperu Rei, only slightly different from the Keperu Rei formula. So, to those familiar with recent royal identities, the name Nefer-Keperure was business as usual. It's the second half of the king's name that is interesting, because it seems to express a new idea. Nefer-Keperure also called himself Wa-En-Re. This translates as the sole one of Re, or Re's one and only. In other words, the new pharaoh was claiming an exclusive or special relationship with the solar god, the creator of all life. This is quite interesting. From the very beginning, it seems that Amunhotep IV wanted to present himself, and the king as a general concept, as someone who had a unique relationship with the greatest of the gods. In other words, he was separate from the rest of humanity, able to access knowledge that others simply didn't have. We've seen ideas similar to this before, most recently in the way that Amunhotep III claimed to have been begotten by the god himself, and Hatshepsut before that had done the same. Recently, pharaohs had proclaimed themselves to be like Rey in their deeds, shining with splendor and all-powerful across all lands. Of course, this had all culminated in the idea of Amunhotep III, the dazzling sun disk, who was the greatest king and a divine being with absolute power. So the idea was clearly there, percolating in the sort of pharaonic subconscious for many generations, but Amunhotep IV expresses it more explicitly than anyone who comes before him. Which begs the question, what exactly was he getting at with these names? I don't have a full answer to that question just yet. It's going to take us several episodes and several stages of this story to begin to unpack the full meaning of what Amunhotep was intending. Long story short, it seems that Amunhotep IV came to the throne with an idea that the pharaoh was separate from the rest of the world and had exclusive access to the divine powers. Once again, this isn't exactly a new idea. Pharaohs of Egypt had always claimed an exclusive relationship with the gods, but Amunhotep IV made this concept a central part of his public identity. When someone said the name Neb Ma'at Rey, the throne name of Amunhotep III, all they were expressing was the concept that the sun god Rey was the lord of Ma'at, of justice and order. 
But when they said the name Nefer Keperure Wa Enre, on the one hand they were expressing the glories of Ray's appearances, but on the other hand they were expressing a concept that the pharaoh was exclusively powerful and uniquely related to the solar creator. If this seems confusing, don't worry, it is. We're going to explore this concept repeatedly over the rest of this king's reign, not just because it's a central part of his entire story, but also because this idea of exclusivity and the relationship between Amunhotep and the solar deity went through several incarnations. So as the story moves forward, we get to come back to this concept again and again in order to explore the relationship between this man and his god. Apart from his throne name, Nefakeperure Wa Enre also identified himself personally in some relatively unprecedented ways. To explore these, we must go to the very first images of the new pharaoh. These were carved on the walls of a tomb built by a courtier who happened to serve both Amunhotep IV and his late father. We've met this man before. His name is Keruwef. Keruwef, royal scribe and steward for the estate of Queen T, has been our eyewitness to the said festivals of Amunhotep III, episodes 100, 105, and 107. Now, Keruwef also provides the earliest surviving images of Amunhotep IV, soon after his accession to power. You see, when the late king Nebmatre died, Keruwef was in the process of building and decorating his tomb. When that transition of power occurred, Keruwef recorded it, placing images of the new pharaoh on the walls of his sepulchre. His images are fascinating. In the tomb of Keruwef, most of the monument is decorated with scenes of Amunhotep III and his jubilees. But, at the very front entrance, the part that was decorated last, we see the first scenes of a new king. The images are quite conventional. Amunhotep IV appears twice, standing before two different gods. He makes offerings to, on the left, Re Horakti, and on the right, Re Atum. Both of these are sun gods in different forms. Re Horakti is the sun of the horizons, who appears each morning and heralds the renewal of life. Re Atum, meanwhile, is the original creator, the one who appeared before life itself and brought the universe into being. When we see Amunhotep IV make offerings to these gods, he offers some quite specific prayers. Quote, Giving wine to Re Horakti, that he may make the giving of life. Giving incense to Re Atum, that he may make the giving of life. End quote. The young king offers wine and incense to two all-powerful deities, so that they may cause creation, the giving of life, to continue for all time. In return, Amunhotep receives their blessings, and hieroglyphic captions repeat the names of the king, along with some praise and celebrations. Quote, the younger god, Nefakeperure Wa Enre, the son of Re, Amunhotep, the god who rules Thebes. One who is great in his lifetime, given life like Re. The protection of life is all around him every day. End quote. The new monarch, Amunhotep IV, seems to have inherited some of the splendour of his father. Firstly, he calls himself great in his lifetime, which sounds a little presumptuous at this early date. If Keruwef's tomb gives us the first surviving images of this king, 
then he wouldn't have had any time to do anything which would make him great in his lifetime. These ideas are interesting. They seem to hint that Amunhotep IV came to power with an inflated sense of his own majesty. Was this a product of his own imagining, or were the influential factors a bit more complicated? With the benefit of hindsight, and knowing where this king eventually wound up, you would be forgiven for assuming that his ideas of kingship and power were slightly warped from the very beginning. But the truth is, that really doesn't seem to be the case. If we consider the artistic style of the Karoef scenes, we get a sense of a far more conventional ruler than you might otherwise expect. To begin with, Amunhotep IV doesn't appear in the strange Amana style with which he is so often associated. Instead, he appears pretty much like his father. Amunhotep IV appears in the regalia of Pharaoh. He wears the blue crown and a sharp white kilt. His body is muscular but slim, an image of fitness and youth, in the style of mid-18th dynasty art. All things considered, he looks identical to his father. The motifs are the same, the accessories are the same, and only the cartouches give away his identity. So the new monarch fit within the traditions of his predecessor. If you didn't have the cartouches, you would think it was Neb Ma'at Rey all over again. So the very first images of the king depict a business-as-usual approach to iconography. Granted, the texts and the names of the king hint at some slightly new ideas, and calling himself great in his lifetime, the new monarch certainly seems slightly more grandiose than usual. You might even say presumptuous, but this is a dangerous thing to do. For some scholars, it is awfully tempting to look at aspects like these and try to reconstruct the king's personality as some kind of impulsive or arrogant youth. But personally, I think this is a bit of a mistake. Amunhotep's earliest imagery is slightly unusual, but only slightly. And when you consider that his father, the great Neb Ma'at Rey, had made himself a living god, it's not hard to see what those ideas might have done to the idea of royal power itself. For all we know, Amunhotep IV wasn't expressing his own initiative, but rather trying to match an incredibly powerful legacy. So although a name like Wa En Rei, Rei's one and only, and a title like Great in His Lifetime, may seem arrogant to us, we should remember the king was inheriting the power of a truly arrogant predecessor. The new pharaoh settled on his throne and declared publicly the names which would define his identity. They were slightly unusual names, but not exactly outrageous. As a royal beginning, it was relatively standard stuff, all things considered. Of course, with hindsight, many of Amunhotep's earliest deeds, including his choice of name and epithets, seems almost ominous. We know where he's going, and it's hard not to see dark inklings of future policies in these early choices. Nevertheless, we should remember, to begin with, everything seemed normal. The king's monuments also testify to a remarkably conventional, but still intriguing beginning. In chapter 2, we will look at how the king began to publicise his particular outlook on the world and the matter of the great gods. After the break, it's time to visit Karnak Temple and see how Amunhotep IV began his religious path, a most curious path.
After he took the throne and buried his father within his tomb, Amunhotep IV turned to the business of governing. To begin with, he did what any good pharaoh of the high 18th dynasty would do. To mark his ascendancy and demonstrate his legitimacy as a pharaoh, he commissioned monuments that would proclaim his might and piety. To do this, the new king went to Karnak. Karnak, the home of Amun-Ra, of Mut and of Konsu, was now a sprawling edifice of sandstone and granite structures. For the past 600 years, since its inception in the early Middle Kingdom, Karnak had expanded massively. Shrines became halls, clearings became courts, obelisks became bigger obelisks? Pylons rose, gateways developed, and the whole complex just expanded, generation after generation. By the time of Amunhotep IV, the temple at the heart of Thebes was a monster. The new monarch's additions to Karnak are fascinating, in hindsight, for just how conventional they are. To begin with, Amunhotep added a sort of portico or porch to one of the main gates. This porch survives partially in Karnak's open-air museum, where I accidentally stumbled on it earlier this year. Photos on the website. The surviving pieces of Amunhotep's Karnak porch show him in a smiting scene. The king strides forward, one hand gripping the hair of his prisoners. The other hand, now lost, raises up with a mace, ready to land that killing blow. It's the definition of pharaonic power, hearkening back to the very earliest days of the royal lineage. What I particularly like about this scene, though, is how the prisoners are depicted. We see Amunhotep's victims in a large cluster, facing to left and to right. There are three tiers of people, one group at the top, another below, and a third on the bottom. What's interesting is how their faces are depicted. It's hard to tell exactly, but it seems that the stonemasons carved the faces first before moving on to the bodies. Problem is, they never finished the bodies, so the scene has this outline of different figures, but no details except for a series of ghostly faces peering out of the stone. It's a wonderful effect, and it makes me happy. Pictures on the website. Amunhotep IV smiting his prisoners is a traditional scene. We shouldn't assume he actually did this at any point. Maybe he did, and in a couple of episodes I'll talk about the growing evidence for this king organising military campaigns. But the scene itself is just that, a scene fitting in with the traditional scope of pharaonic power. Crush the enemies, trample them to dust, grind their bones, bake your bread. That kind of thing. Elsewhere at Karnak, Amunhotep added a new gateway to one of his father's pylons. The tenth pylon, located on the southern side of the complex, and pointing roughly towards Luxor Temple, had begun construction during Amunhotep III's reign. Later, it would be completed by a man named Horemheb, but in between those two points, Amunhotep IV made some contributions. What he added is quite significant. The new gateway was straightforward architecturally. Two stone jams with slots for wooden doors. Standard stuff. But the decoration included scenes of the king and the gods. And one of those gods was depicted in a novel way. On one of the surviving blocks, we see our friend Rei Horakti, the Falcon of the Two Horizons. This was the god that Amunhotep had worshipped in the tomb of Keroef. Well, he appears again here. Rei Horakti shows up as a falcon-headed male, wearing a large sun disk as his crown. 
The sun disk itself has a uraeus, making it quite literally a crown. Beside the god, a series of hieroglyphs proclaim his name, and this is where it gets interesting. The name of Rei Horakti was traditionally something along the lines of Rei Horakti, the great god, lord of the sky. But this depiction at Karnak proclaims something new. The god is now called, quote, Rei Horakti, rejoicing in the horizon, in his name, Shu, who is in the Aten, end quote. Shu who is in the Aten. What the hell does that mean? Let me break it down. Okay, so you know about Aten, the disk of the sun. That's easy enough. Shu, you may remember, is a primordial god, one of the first. Shu came about when his father, Atum, you know, the creator, spat or ejaculated the first substance of creation. Shu and his sister-slash-consort Tefnut came from that first moment. Shu represents a couple of concepts, primarily air and light. In some of the funerary texts from this time, Shu is described as the one who lifts the sun into the daytime sky at every dawn. In other words, the god Shu represented parts of the atmosphere, the light of the sun, and the interplay between those two elements. So, Shu who is in the Aten might also be translated as the light which is in the sun disk. So, Rei Horakti, the great god, was now coupled with a new identity, the identity of rejoicing in his name, Shu who is in the Aten. From one perspective, you might translate it as a new calling card for the sun god. On the one hand, he's still Rei, the falcon of the two horizons. But on the other hand, he is also a god who rejoices in the light which emanates from his most visible form. That form is the Aten, or sun disk. Obviously, we're going to explore the Aten a lot more over the coming episodes. For now, let's get back to those monuments. Amunhotep IV contributed a new gate to the 10th pylon, a splendid entrance decorated with images of his favourite god. Rei Horakti, rejoicing in the light of the Aten, was a new form of the creator. To complement this solar focus, the king also commissioned two extra edifices for this gate. Obelisks. Fragments of stone discovered at Karnak suggest that one of Amunhotep's major contributions was a splendid pair of obelisks. Towering needles, these structures probably have a solar connotation. The traditional interpretation is that obelisks combine a form of the primeval mound at the peak, and the main body is an abstract representation of sun rays. If that interpretation is correct, then the erection of obelisks at the 10th pylon fits quite nicely with Amunhotep's obvious interest in Rei Horakti, the shining light of Egypt. These structures, a portico, a gateway, and two obelisks, are totally conventional additions to Karnak Temple. Amunhotep IV started his reign with practical, traditional edifices. Again, although we expect him to show radical innovation right off the bat, the truth is Pharaoh's first acts were mostly consistent with tradition. So the first year of Amunhotep IV seems to have been business as usual. After his accession, around January of 1362, the king first had to bury his late father, and then begin his rule in earnest. It seems like he kept the boat steady in the public sphere. The king's early monuments show him in the traditional guise of Pharaoh. He looks just like his father, and performs the same sort of actions. 
Whether it was making offerings to the great gods, like the tomb of Kerouef, or smiting foreign enemies on the gateways of Karnak, Amunhotep IV appeared to be a typical member of the Pharaonic lineage. He also embraced the conventional royal gods, Atum, Rehorakti, perhaps even Amun, we'll see evidence for that next episode. The great royal beings were placated and honoured appropriately. Sure, the pharaoh described Rehorakti in some slightly novel terms, but the gods had many names, surely that wasn't such a big deal. Amunhotep IV's rule began well, all things considered. His building projects were successful, his subjects presumably treated him with respect. For those watching the new king, it may not have seemed like he was any different from what came before. Of course, all we can say is how wrong they were. As his first year in power came to its end, Amunhotep IV was sitting pretty. For us, this first year may seem uneventful, but it does feature two significant clues to where the pharaoh would eventually take his policies. On the one hand, Amunhotep's throne names, his public identity, conveyed a bold expression of royal individuality, of a unique relationship between pharaoh and gods. On the other, the king's monuments at Karnak leave tantalising hints of his religious beliefs. The king was changing the divine names of Rei Horakti to suit a new vision of the world. Although nascent, these ideas were clearly percolating within the king's mind. Over the next year or two, Amunhotep would enact some truly fascinating policies. Join me soon for episode 109, in which Amunhotep begins to show stronger hints of the man he would later become. From his first diplomatic engagements, the king revealed a different perspective on his obligations and the pharaoh's place in an international world. These would play out in a dispute with the kingdom of Mitanni. More importantly though, it was time for Amunhotep to choose a queen. Who would this lady be? We will meet her in episode 109, Nefertiti, releasing soon. Mm-hmm.